Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Ed Marks, Digital Voices. So just a reminder, Digital Voices is all about the world of digital and healthcare across all aspects, including life sciences, providers, payers, big tech, all those sort of things. So you'll see all of our guests come from a wide variety of backgrounds and sometimes outside of that, just so we get some additional exposure to thinking outside of healthcare. And today we're going to tackle a real, real important sort of challenge that faces all of us in this world. And that's along the lines of mental health. And what can we do from a digital perspective that might help everyone in terms of the mental health. We talk a lot about wellness and health and all that stuff from like an exercise point of view, and which is really, really important. But oftentimes we sort of neglect the mental aspects of our lives. So we, we really want to hit on that hard. And one other note, and I say it from time to time, we are commercial-free, ad-free. There's no pay-to-play. So our guests are all here on their own. And I ask questions to learn about their companies because I'm super interested and I think you might be as well. But never infer that this is some sort of infomercial. It's really important to the integrity of our show. Not that there's anything wrong with shows that do things differently, but that's just who we are at Digital Voices. So we're going to have Dr. Allison Darcy joining us. Dr. Darcy, welcome to Digital Voices. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to ask our DJ first, Megan, our producer extraordinaire, about Ireland, because, you know, I think people just heard your voice and they might be thinking, where is Allison from? And so, Megan, have you been to Ireland? If not, I would love to go. My maiden name was Finley, so I've got some Irish roots, but I've, I've never been. Would love to. Well, you're very welcome. It's a beautiful autumn day here and it's going to get very dark in a couple of weeks for, through the winter. But the summers are fantastic because we have like very, very long days and lots of daylight and it's uh, very magical. So, yeah, call in whenever you're on this side of the world. Yeah, Ireland is amazing. I love it in so many ways. I don't want to take up time talk, me talking about Ireland, but maybe someday... I will. So I want to get right to Allison. So Allison, the first time we met was actually virtual and it was this year. And it's because we have a great mutual friend in Chris Hemphill. And he sort of brought us together like, man, we're doing these great things with mental health. And I know the importance of it and you know the criticality of this discussion and then how what you're doing and your passion around mental health and you know uh, everything about like uh, you know your sort of tagline, not to steal any of your thunder, but make a robot that help people feel happier. I say that sort of right. That's right. That's right. That that's actually that was a a blink of an eye tagline in my LinkedIn, you know, from six years ago. But I think it still fits. Ultimately, I think yeah, it was about building assistive technology to help people, you know, be a little bit happier during the day. Yeah. It's a very simple idea. I don't think it's it's as kind of grand and as lofty as I think some people are fearful of um, because often the things that are good for us are actually very small, you know, but daily frequent behaviors. And that's what we were trying to accomplish with, with Wobot. But yeah, I can talk to that. Yeah, we're going to get in it. But first, everyone wants to know, especially from you, because of your accent, you know, you're not going to, you're not, obviously not out of the United States or somewhere in, in North America. What songs are on your playlist? Oh, interesting. So when you asked me that, Ed, I was thinking more like a Desert Island Discs kind of episode. And I was thinking, oh God, what would, if I, if you asked me my three kind of like so three songs that come to mind immediately that uh, have been sort of pivotal in my, you know, 
growth as a person. I did actually come to three immediately, which is interesting, and they're fairly eclectic. So the first is Glastonbury Song by the Waterboys. And most people will know the whole of the moon by the Waterboys. I love the Waterboys, but the Glastonbury song, I remember being in an, in the West of Ireland when I was 16 and the people who were running this like outdoor adventure center we were on, they would blast this song first thing in the morning to wake us up. And it is this like incredibly wholehearted, you know, great just song and all the, the Waterboys talent they bring to it. Um, every song they do is like, full blown and similarly the second one is probably Arcade Fire anything from any Arcade Fire album I would say but Arcade Fire just really obsessed with them in in my 20s and followed them around getting very hard to get tickets in places and you know also very wholehearted swinging off the rafters full kind of orchestral you know love that and then the final one would probably be which reminds me of my time in San Francisco with all of my friends where your friends from LCD sound system actually my first tweet ever was a quote from James Murphy from LCD Sound System, which was really, I thought that is just really good advice. And it was that the best way to complain is to make something. And I think that really sums up actually the plight of an entrepreneur, right? You're you're sort of, you create something out of, you know, this very big sense that something's not right. So big fan of LCD as well. No, I love that. So now there's three, those are three bands that I do not have any music of. So I'll be spending tonight downloading some of those. Oh, the Waterboys, old school, but you'll love them. I think you'll, I think something tells me, Ed, you'll love them. And Arcade Fire, ah, how could you not love them? They're they're great. I love music. So I'm definitely down to uh, always checking out. That's why one of the reasons we asked the question is kind of from a selfish point of view. So I always expand my playlist and then I can try to be more hip, you know, in front of my friends and family. We have in work, we have an amazing Slack channel that is music and I shamefully cannot keep up. Like there are some incredible artists now and yeah, I'm just not knowledgeable anymore. So I was giving you sort of three from my memory bank, but yeah, hopefully they'll, you'll like them as much as I do. Yeah, no, I love it. And you, you already sort of went into philosophy a little bit with the, your first tweet, but is there a, what, you know, your, what's your passion or do you have a life message or mantra words that you live by that sort of thing? Oh, Gosh, many, I think. I think, yeah, I think fundamentally I've come to realize that I'm a fairly creative person and that creativity actually crops up in lots of different ways. One of the principles I think that drives very good creative inspiration, if you like, is constraint, actually. I think in a lot of times constraint is your friend. It very much, it like fuels creativity. And so that is something that I live by. And then, um, oh, any other philosophies? I'm sure it'll come through the course of the conversation. <laughs> no, that right there. Constraint is your friend. I, I've not heard that. I like it in many different ways. So yeah, that's that's very cool. When you see, for example, I have there's something that I observed with oh, friends of mine that had had children, something that I call mom efficiency. The, the, their concept of what can happen in 10 minutes you know, they can just do a lot more because your time is, you know, your time is limited and you've a lot to do. And it is incredible how people, how efficient people can be, you know, in that. But I was also one of those people that studied for an exam the night before, you know, and amazing capacity to get a lot done in that time. So, you know, the trick is now, how do you create that constraint earlier on so that you're not like right up against the wall? Yeah, no, I I can definitely relate to some of that. So, Share with us your story. You know, it's very interesting already, a couple bits and pieces, but you you can start back as far as you want, personal, professional, but tell us your story about 
you know, who you are and what you're doing and, and you know, until today? Sure. Um, well, I'm by training a, a sort of clinical scientist. So I was a psychologist working in psychiatry. And um, prior to kind of going back to grad school, I taught myself to code and worked in an investment bank <laughs> in London, which I was, you know, it's really bad at. It was the 90s and the dot-com boom. And it was actually, there was a lot of excitement about the internet at the time and how the internet was going to transform all fields and really interesting kind of similarities in the way that we talk about AI now. But back then, I remember thinking, well, the wow, the internet's going to solve all these problems of access that we have in healthcare. And it can do so much, you know, interesting things. And we were building um, sort of decision making, decision support software for investment bankers. Whereas, you know, now that's what we're trying to build. Uh, Not us personally, but the health field is really leaning into embracing that kind of technology in, in healthcare to enable physicians and clinicians to do a lot more when they're with the patient. Yeah. So having that background in technology and I was in London at the time when a friend of mine who had co-founded a support organization, a charitable organization that supported people with eating disorders and their family and friends through a network of support services like support groups and, and helplines and so on. And we were kind of talking about the challenge of supporting an in-person service when there is sort of population density problems in, in rural parts of Ireland. And also there's like, frankly, a lot, you know, there would be stigma, which there's still is today, sadly, around attending somewhere. And what if somebody sees you going into the community center at a certain time, right? So these are things that have plagued everybody for a long time. But it was also about resource efficiency and how could they continue to support people, but in a way that, you know, was a little bit more efficient, which then, of course, allows you to support people for longer because you're just around longer as a charity, as an entity. And we started thinking about, well, maybe we could do an online support group. That sort of kicked off a bit of work where I started looking into that and I started deeply thinking about what are the things about the in-person support group experience what is it that actually transmits support? Like what is it that has a curative effect, if you like? And is there any way to replicate that in a digital setting? And also, could you lean into the opportunities that the digital setting allows for and amplify those? And then could you fix some of the stuff that we don't like about the in-person setting as well? And so I didn't know it at the time, but I think that process really helped me fall in love with this kind of translational science sort of process. And so then I, that's been sort of my, my research career. Most recently, I was at Stanford working there as research faculty and was developing kind of these really cutting edge treatments and looking at ways in which we could amplify those effects that we get through tech. Or could you, could you scale the very rare expertise that we had in some of our clinicians? Could you try and be able to kind of reach further around the globe, if you like, using tech without diluting the efficacy that you see in the lab and so on. That's really been the perspective that I've always had. And I've always had a sort of a very broad like way of thinking about, I guess, like an open-minded view of access issues, I suppose, like from the personal, which actually those attitudinal factors turn out to be among the most potent preventative things, right, that, that stop people from reaching out and connecting with the system all the way to the systemic issues that we have and the ways in which, you know, various groups of people have been somewhat disenfranchised and and so on. And um, are there ways that we could go about fixing those? And with Wobot, I think what I saw was, if you take a sort of intervention science point of view, I saw like really very good tools 
clinical tools, uh, really good approaches to mental health. Like I think cognitive behavioral therapy that was developed by Beck in the, the late 70s and others, Albert Ellison, David Burns and so on, is just such an incredibly innovative approach to mental health. Because prior to that, the predominant approach was psychodynamic and sort of, you know, talking to people about their childhood and symbol, symbolism and dreams. And it was several sessions a week over several years where CBT was saying, you know what, let's just look at the ways in which you're thinking now and what are you doing now that feeds into this sort of negative self view that you have or negative view of the world and the future that you might have. And if we start to dismantle those perspectives and help you have a more realistic, objective perspective, does it actually shift your mood? And it turned out that that very practical, data-driven, sort of here and now, time-limited approach to mental health really did get much better outcomes. And I loved how empowering it was. It was saying, you know what, you actually have the all of the equipment that you need to be able to shift your own mindset. And not saying it's going to be easy. It's often really difficult work, but it meant that people weren't what's the word? They weren't doomed by their early life experiences, right? And I found that that was a really empowering piece. Problem is, very few clinicians do pure CBT. (laughs) So it's really hard to find somebody that's very, you know, CBT focused and orientated. And where people have um, built CBT versions that are self-delivered, maybe in a book traditionally or over the internet, of which there've been many, they've actually shown to have similar effects as in-person therapists delivered CBT. So this, this is great. So that seems like it solves the access issue. However, <laughs> there's always but, but they've been shown to not be very engaging. And the other piece is that where there's a human involved in guidance, so not necessarily delivering the, the cognitive behavioral therapy itself, but showing people where they should go and like what chapter they should look at or what bit of content they should engage in, where there's human guidance, the effects were always better. So I felt, well, what if we, so if we fix the engagement issue, you could maximize, you could get actually more potency out of a purely digital, which was a purely scalable um, approach to CBT. And so that's why we built Wobot. Wobot is the sort of guide, but it was an automated guide. And many people think Wobot is a sort of AI therapist. That's how it often gets written about in the press. And that is not it at all. And it's actually a natural progression for where this field has gone, but also trying to solve the the barrier that the field has hit in terms of we can't get better outcomes out of these, you know, very scalable solutions. And for the longest time, we thought, well, because we need a human there, but actually you don't, you need the guidance, you need the empathy, and you need people to be able to express in their own words what they're dealing with and have a tailored experience thereafter. Um, But that can actually be delivered by something that's automated. That is very super interesting, right? Because that's been the promise of digital from the get-go is how do you scale something and have the same efficacy and efficiencies? And, you know, it's very few have done it. And it sounds like you all are doing it and in such an important space. And so let's continue to go down this road. But then I want to, after we go down this road a little bit, I want to just talk about mental health in general and then finish up on some leadership topics because clearly you're, you're a great, great leader given your past and the present. So can you share an example or any examples? Obviously, you can't speak specifically about a patient, but you know, in general about some success to date 
you know, in terms of Wobot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I will say, I think we're at the very beginning of the journey. We've published, I think it's like 11 peer-reviewed scientific papers at this point. And we continue to basically have a full program of research because I think coming from my background in intervention science, I actually see that research process as as a like a strategy for product development and especially and one that is sustainable and you know very rigorous and of course the rigorous findings are really give you a very good sense of where to explore next and how to systematically improve upon things but i think the the kind of the day to day successes we get a lot of emails and they're always very moving. There was actually a really nice, recently in the New York Times, a gentleman published sort of an opinion essay on his experience of, of a year with Wobot. It's really very funny in places and it's very heartfelt in others. And we have this interesting thing that almost everybody sort of said, like, I didn't want to like this, or I was really skeptical that this would be helpful, but I find this little guy, you know, it's actually really helpful. <laughs> it's quite uh, interestingly sort of unassuming. And if you're expecting some, you know, really sophisticated AI, that's like the movie Her, that is not what this is, right? But it is empathic. It is beautifully written. Everything Wobot says has been scripted by our clinical writers who are, you know, really empathic humans. And it comes through in the writing, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think I'm thinking about some of the emails I've received recently, one from a, a I think, 87 year old man who, you know, like everybody else, even if they're in their 20s or in their 80s, he's like, I don't think this is for me, but wow, I didn't think it was going to be as helpful as it is. And I really, you know, I really, really love it. To somebody that was using Wobot with um, at the end of life, that was a very moving email that I got last last year in December, uh, right at the end of the year. Yeah, it's just very moving. Um, so it's really, it's hard to predict, but I think We've always had this philosophy that Wobot is, or that CBT, the concepts within CBT can be useful for everybody, but it's not always sufficient. And so it does, so that's the beauty about CBT as an approach to mental health. It's been shown to be effective across lots of populations and across lots of problems. So it is, you know, it's based on this very broadly applicable kind of model of mental health care. So I would say that's the magic of CBT. And I do think there's some magic in the way Wobot is conducts themselves and the way that the writing is. But yeah, I wouldn't want to take yeah. too much credit. I think CBT itself is is such a good model on which we're based. Yeah. That's awesome. And I definitely see how it, it would be very successful. You mentioned empathy a couple of times. So that would probably be a natural question that people would have. And I think you've already hinted at how you have made an empathetic tool. Can you talk about that a little bit more? So you, you mentioned like in the writing style, so basically in the programming and, and the, mm. the responses, you have empathetic people who are authoring that because empathy is so critical, as you know. So I was just curious, you know, any more thoughts on empathy? Well, we've loads of time, loads of thoughts on empathy. I can share with you our kind of approach to how we create empathy, if you like, and how we think yeah. about empathy. So obviously, I think, and there's lots of research, I think, that have broken down this sort of emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. And there's some interesting kind of things emerging in terms of the neuroscience and the neurophysiology about how those two things are experienced differently. When we think about the function of empathy, I feel like it's about deeply understanding what it is that you've heard and demonstrating that you deeply understand and that you don't judge. And if you think about it, that that's, that's really, I don't actually, if I were to speak to, you know, say I am in a, a traditional therapy setting, I don't know if I need my therapist to have actually gone through 
what I'm going through, but I do need them to understand it and they must have credibility in my eyes. So they, they, I do want them or need them to kind of understand a little bit about what it's like to be in my shoes. And if they don't to actively ask about that. And so that's how we approach it with Wobot. When, when we're, if you like creating empathy, what we're doing is, and this is very just kind of practical kind of stuff. There's no AI generating, you know, super empathic statements. What we do is talk to dozens and dozens and dozens of people with the lived experience of the folks that we're building for. Um, for example, when we were building a program for postpartum depression, we just talked to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of, at the moment, just moms and find out what, what is it like? What's your experience? And if you really speak to the lived experience of people, that's how they can feel that you're, you get it. You are coming from a place of deep understanding. And of course, the people that are writing the things that Wobot says are coming from that place of understanding because they've spoken to all of these women. That's really the function. That's how we think about empathy at Wobot. That's awesome, right? Because a lot of times we throw, uh, we can create digital solutions that can work, and but they're very cold and you don't get that engagement that you spoke about. And I imagine because of the the whole angle of building in the empathy, you know, you're getting the sort of success uh, that you're getting. So there's so much more I want to cover, Allison, and we're on a short time, so I'm, so I'm deliberating here. Let's talk a little bit about mental health in general, and maybe we'll do sort of this a short answer because I want to ask you a question or two on leadership before we let you go. And so mental health, you know, I know that you travel quite a bit. Is it a as a bigger issue in other certain parts of the world and other parts of the world, like generally speaking, like the more industrial nations have a higher incidence of mental health challenges, or have you seen any sort of uh, uh, trends like that? Everybody has mental health, right? Everybody. And I think that became very apparent to folks during the pandemic for the first time. I would say societal attitudes are really different in terms of how we think about mental health. And so there are parts of the world in which it's considered a big weakness. It's not spoken about and there are very few services, if any at all. So I would say the the real variations that we see, I don't think it's so much, it's hard to say whether or not the incidence and prevalence of mental health really differs across cultures significantly because of course, the way in which we measure it and the openness with which people can approach the subject vary so greatly and depends so much on where we're talking. But yeah, the services, service availability is very so greatly, it's hard to almost get your head around it. So things like there are, I think there are seven or nine, I can't remember, certainly it's a prime number. Uh, there's only seven or nine <laughs> psychiatrists in all of Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, for example. And there are more, I think there are more psychotherapists in California, I think, or in Southern California than all of Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. You know, there's challenges like this that, that people like um, Vikram Patel would be a lot better at, at speaking to. But certainly we believe that the kind of the human experience remains the same. Yeah. The nature of suffering remains the same. It is this funny thing that the the more symptomatic you become, the more you your experience is very similar to other people who are also very symptomatic. Whereas people are happy in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. And so we try to build for the common human experience, even from the point of view of like we're we're obviously we're distributed in a lot of English speaking countries that have different cultural nuances. And of course, slang, and we really try and keep things as sort of we, we aim for universality rather than 
comprehensiveness, if you like. So we don't try and attune to every specific nuance of a cultural setting, but really come back to what is human about all of us. And actually, we find that that's quite normalizing for the people who are talking to Wobot. What about the with the pandemic? Did the pandemic create more mental health challenges or did it just expose the challenges that were already there? What, what are your thoughts Oh, I think both, actually. Both of those things are true. It exposed, I think, some of the access problems that we have. And, you know, I think we saw a rapid, in the United States, we saw a rapid increase in utilization of things like telepsychiatry and telemedicine, but but it didn't necessarily solve the issue that we have that, you know, not everybody can see a human. We don't have enough humans. So the people who were underserved continued to be underserved, sadly. At the same time, I do think the pandemic shifted the way in which people are open to talking about their mental health. So it became over, it was almost overnight, it became completely socially acceptable to say that you were struggling with varying to varying degrees, but but more or less, I was shocked at the sometimes the kind of the kinds of people that were suddenly talking about their mental health, which you know I think six months earlier um, was just not happening. So I think yeah, I think we saw a rapid acceleration in some respects in people's awareness of mental health challenges and what it means and the importance of maintaining your mental health every day. Like you said in your intro, Ed, you know, we kind of accept that we have to do these physical maintenance behaviors every day. And we just sort of know now that we have to exercise every day. Whereas, you know, when my parents were my age, I think, you know, you only did that if like they they were just exercising by default. And similarly, I think they were getting a lot more, there was a lot more social support that was baked into society than there is now. And so I think this idea that we are, we should be practicing good mental health hygiene every day is also just coming on stream. But I really hope it gets to the point where to the same place that we talk about exercise now. I agree with you. And, you know, in terms of uh, leadership, so we'll end with this question on leadership, but I think it'll bring everything back together. So, you know, you're a very accomplished leader and you work with other leaders and you're very accomplished in mental health and, you know, this whole digital space. So, and a lot of the listeners are leaders. So that's the, why I'm coming to this question. So the question is, as leaders specifically, so two-part question, what do we need to be very diligent of ourselves, right? So a lot of times we ignore ourselves. So from a mental health perspective, what should all leaders do? Maybe the same things everyone should do. And then the second, as leaders of organizations, what can we do to make sure all of our people are cared for? You know, that we bring up mental health so that everyone feels comfortable getting help if they need it, those sort of things. Those are two very big questions. So (laughs) with respect to the first question, what do we all need to do as leaders to look after ourselves? I think we have to, you know, actually they're both linked. We have to look after ourselves. It's interesting because when you're a leader, I think all eyes are sort of on you, but you lead by example and you really, you people do need to take the time to care for themselves, whatever that looks like for, for you know, and it's a different particular, it's a different formula for every everybody. But I think to answer the second question as well, that's a key piece in looking after all our people is modeling good self-care behaviors, not glorifying the like, we're up till 2 a.m. Like this is, you know, the kind of old school, like I would say, I would call it like an old school, but outdated Silicon Valley kind of idea that you're working till 4am and, you know, we're working 90 hours a week. That's just not 
<laughs> it's not viable. It's not sustainable either. And I think when things are worth build, when things that are sustainable are and, and things that are worth building take time. And so if you, you really need to sustain yourself, then you really need to engage in self-care. Now, do I do it for, personally? Do I do it perfectly all the time? No, but I will never sort of glorify this kind of working at weekends, you do what you have to do because, and because I think when you're a leader, there's, there isn't the same level of separation between life and work as there are maybe for others. So it's not always a chore, but I will never sort of, yeah, glorify minimizing your own needs for the sake of the mission that they actually aren't, they can't be separated. And and hopefully that's not just because we're a mental health company. I hope that that's, that's the sort of model of leadership right now that I think. Yeah, you're spot on. And I'm guilty. You know, as you're saying that, I was like, oh, shoot, I know that. But I don't practice that. And I need to. What about the perspective of us as leaders ensuring that we don't put that on? One, lead by example, as you mentioned, don't glorify, you know, the fact, oh, you're working all the time. Mm. What else can we do in our organizations just to let people know that, that mental health is super important, just like wellness and anything else. And uh, yeah, how, how would you, what would you recommend? It's difficult too. And also in, as we've moved into this phase of distributed workforce as well, I think we, we think about this a lot in our own company, of course, and it, the, the, the old sort of bumping into somebody by the coffee machine and sort of detecting that they are, a little stressed and saying, Hey, what's going on? That that's gone. So we, we have been actively sort of talking to our leaders within the company to, you know, ensure that they're really watching out for people and are there nonverbal cues that they can pick up in zoom calls. And, and there's a lot of like checking in with people personally during, during one-on-one. So it does have to kind of percolate throughout the entire organization. But I also think that reiterating the message, Hey, you know, we don't need you to be at your desk all the time. We need you to be like stimulated at work. And so that, you know, we want you to be inspired and whatever you need to do to maintain that energy, do it because that's the state we want you in, not the just being a zombie in front of the laptop. So I don't know that, it, you know, there's an interesting discussion happening about the sort of surveillance technologies that are being rolled out by some companies and things like there's a very dystopian flavor to it, I'll just say, and I don't know where it's going to go, but I think that's sending the wrong message. Yeah. So there's a new style of, there's probably a new style of management that, you know, is evolving and that we're, we're all going to need to adopt in terms of being able to understand what's really going on with someone when they're not actually physically in front of you. Alison, this has been amazing. You know, it was great learning more about you and then also the company and how it came to be. And then we sort of ended the last few minutes just with, power-packed ideas for self-care and for caring for our people that work with and just to have a better understanding of, of mental health and, and how you know, we can leverage digital like Wobot is to really scale and, and be as effective, if not more so, and, and in an empathetic way. I mean, it was like all wrapped up in 30 minutes. <laughs> awesome. So thank well, you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much for having me out. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great. Yeah. And next time we'll talk you too. And Absolutely. I know. <laughs> All right. That wraps up Digital Voices. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening. 